chapter 11. Let me pray um, succinctly, but not sparingly. Um, And then we will jump into it. It's a thick, kind of a pretty thick chapter. I'll set it up after we pray. So um, pray with me. Um, God, we just ask that you would, um, as I always pray, at least in my heart, would you just be sovereign over this chapter? Um, Would you just refresh refresh your children, especially those headed into dead week? Um, Would you just, would you take their mind off of all the things of this world for a brief moment and put their eyes completely on you um, and your sovereignty and your magnificence? Would you just encourage us, challenge us? Um, in different ways, but um, just continue to pour out your grace through your Holy Spirit. I ask that you enable me to teach, um, and uh, I, I ask that you enable us all, myself included, to learn through this chapter as well, as I've been learning a lot and continue to learn every time I read through it. And so, would you have your way with this time? We love you, we praise you, can't wait to see you again. In Jesus' name, amen. So look, chapter 11 in Romans is, um, it's kind of a big one, but kind of a tough one. Because how many of you have wondered, how many of you have had someone ask, how many of you have gotten in discussions or heard other people discussing this idea of how are Jews then saved, right? And Zach set it up actually in chapter 9 when we talked about this fact that, and part of it's a little, a little tough to grasp because we're like, well, did God like abandon his promise to the Jews? Like, did he change the rules at, at like you know, halfway through the game. Like, hey, it's about this. It's like, oh, by the way, it's this. And then a lot of them are like, well, that's not what you said to begin with. And it changed. We're sort of like, so now they, some do, but some don't. Or how are you, how are you saved in the Old Testament? Because we say everything's about Jesus. Like, well, except the Old Testament, really, because they were saved before Jesus, weren't they? How were, how were you saved in the Old Testament? Right? Now, I would submit to you, I'll set up the whole thing. I want to say this, because I want to make one thing abundantly clear. And I love what Paul does I'm telling you this, we're going we're gonna to venture through the whole chapter. Some of you think it's going to take me eight hours. Um, it'll probably only be about four or five. But check this out. Like, I want to set something up first, but I love what Paul does because he goes through this massive, and it's been building since nine into 10 into 11. He's still addressing like Jews and salvation and righteousness and predestination, all that sort of stuff. He's like building. And I love, and remember, there weren't chapters when he wrote it. It was like this long letter. He comes through nine and through 10. He comes into 11. It's going to get even weirder. At the end, he just stops and he's like, and God is so smart. I don't really understand it all either. That's what's epic. That's what, when I started studying through it, I was like, oh my gosh. I got to the end. I was like, oh, sweet. Right? Like I can just fall back on the last couple sentences where he's like, this is a mystery. Even I don't get it all. Right? So some of you are going to come here and be like, okay, and all the A students, all the nerds getting ready with their notes, like, oh, right, here we go. Right? It's, it's a thick chapter, and it's, gonna, it's actually, it's been tough for me to study. It's probably going to be tough for me to teach, but I want to be very clear on one thing at the onset. One thing, okay? People have always, are currently, and will forever be saved only by faith in Jesus, Somebody said, but you've got to do the whole Old Testament. You've got to break this down. Again, people have only been, are currently, and will forever only be saved by a faith in Jesus. Now, the trick is this. In the Old Testament, their faith pointed forward to the coming Messiah. They did not know, I'll give you this. They did not know that his name would be Jesus. He was given that name in the incarnation, but their faith pointed forward to the Messiah. So their faith pointed forward to the Messiah who would come. 
So those who did have that faith pointing forward in the Old Testament were saved by their faith in the Son of God, though they didn't know his name would be Jesus. Does that make sense? Their faith pointed forward to the Messiah and they are saved by the faith in Jesus. We know his name now because we've received full revelation. They didn't at the time, but it doesn't change God's method. Their faith was in the coming Messiah. Jesus came and their faith in the coming Messiah is what saved Jews in the Old Testament. I need you to know that. Look, and we can, I've done a whole study of how Jesus shows up in the Old Testament how the titles were about him, how the institutions were about him, how the law was about him. I've gone through it all, okay? Everything in the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. And so when people say, then how were the Jews saved? If you say people are only saved by Jesus, and if he came and said, I am the only way to get to the Father, what about the people that were saved before he came? Their faith was placed in the Son of God. And we know his name to be Jesus. The only name underneath heaven by which someone must be saved is Jesus Their faith pointed forward. Jesus came. We are only saved by a faith in Jesus. And even in Revelation, Revelation is Jesus revealing himself. Okay? Even in Revelation, you see people still given a chance to put their faith in Jesus. Now in Calvary Chapel, we generally teach that that there's going to be the rapture before the tribulation. Personally, I'm way on board with that. I want to be in heaven when that craziness goes down. I'm like selfishly pre-trib like crazy. Want that for myself. Want to be just, you know, popcorning it for that whole thing. It's going to be Spielberg on acid. It's going to be crazy, okay? I want to be gone for that, okay? And, and I believe that when John gets pulled up in the book of Revelation, that's a picture of the church, and the church isn't mentioned again, by the way. And I've taught through Revelation, crazy cool book, right? But even in the tribulation, we see that people put their faith in Jesus and are saved. It's not like tribulation happens and no one else is saved. There's still salvation in tribulation with faith pointing to the fact that Jesus would come again. It has always been, is currently in full, and forever will be salvation by faith in Jesus alone. Do we get that? Old Testament, present, revelation, faith in Jesus. That's what saves. Okay? That is what saves. And Paul is pouring out, as he did last week, we talked about righteousness last week in 10. Before that, we went into predestination, right, with Zach. Predestination in chapter 9, but this whole thing has been building. He's been building and building and building. And he's continuing to hit this issue because it was so important then, it's still important now. That Paul delineates how people are saved. But the question arises, what to do with the Jews then? God's chosen people. Okay. And one of the things that we have to see in this chapter is that a lot of times we put it very linear. We say there was, there was Judaism. And I've, to a certain extent, actually been guilty of this by saying like Judaism has ended. It's been completed. It's been fulfilled. And I still believe that, but I know how that sounds. It sounds like, well, there's Judaism, then it stops. And now there's Christianity. And like God's promise transitioned and there's nothing about what has happened that is enveloped into what is currently happening. I want us to see it like a cone now. Okay. I want you to see the salvific plan like a cone, not like a linear equation, not like a line. Okay. I want you to see that God's promises continue to envelop more and more people as it goes. Okay. Okay. 
And so what started here has been growing. And by the way, even though we feel like Christianity is declining, we're the largest religion on the planet. Not that that actually matters. But you need to know what I'm talking about is God's kingdom has always been growing. He has always been adding people to the body. And so with Judaism, what happened is that once Jesus came and the new covenant sparked, we see that Christianity was enveloped in this already in process promise of God's people. So I don't want us to think of it as there's where Judaism and then Matthew kicks off and now there's Christianity. I want us to see that God's promise continues to get better, the New Testament says. New covenant's better than the old one. And it now envelops the Gentiles. Is anyone here Jewish by ethnicity? Room full of Gentiles, okay? By Old Testament standard, screwed, okay? Hold, hold, right here, hold, just all, right? You can't say that from the pulpit, just did. Okay, and so, right? Room full of Gentiles, okay? He's gonna address this. But this all growing, encompassing, enveloping promise is unfolding and Paul has to address it because people still ask the question, well, then what about the Jews? And some of us, myself included, have really kind of written off what God has done with them and said, yeah, but it's all new rules now. And I don't even think until maybe about a year ago when I was actually visiting another church, heard a, a, just, a, just a, a, a terrific message that really challenged me on this concept. It was out of Revelation, actually, out of seven, I think, when it took a look at the 144,000, which are Jewish um, believers in the tribulation that are sealed and signed with the Holy Spirit. But I was really challenged, too, on my views regarding Judaism, okay? So that might happen tonight. You might be very much challenged on the way we have viewed Judaism, but you need to know none of it will shake the foundation of this, that people have always been, are currently, and will forever be only saved by their faith in Jesus Christ alone. Okay? We got that? So here we go. There's going to be probably more reading than usual. Some of you are super excited about that, right? Good. There's, gonna, there's a lot of text. It's a big chapter. Part of me was only going to do like the first 11, and then I just read it and kept reading it and kept reading it. We're just going to do the whole thing. I'm going to chime in here. I'm going to try to clarify some things. But as I said, in fact, you should kind of be like okay with the fact that as this thing builds and I ramble on, and you're like, I don't think he's teaching it well because I don't really get it, right? It's not my fault because at the end, he's like, by the way, we don't get all this stuff. So I love that. I'm just throwing that out now so that you don't think I'm a horrible teacher in the process, okay? Because this stuff is tough at times to comprehend. And so he says this at the beginning of Romans chapter 11. And actually take a look one verse before that. Take a look at at verse 21 of chapter 10. We didn't go that far last week. But he says, but to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God says, I've been extending and people have been contrary to my will and they've been disobedient to my commandments. But all the time he has been extending his hands. And they've been a disobedient and contrary people. And he says, I say then, at the top of chapter 11, has God cast away his people? That's what he's asking. That's the question that he's asking. Then what about the Jews? If it's all about Jesus now, then what about the Jews? Even now, because if you talk to a Jewish person, they don't evangelize. Why? Because they say, because we're God's chosen people. We can't affect that. We're chosen. And and it's a very hard ministry to evangelize to Jews. Why? Because they're right. They're like sort of a big deal in the Old Testament. They're like, look, chosen people, what else you got? 
well, we're also in, you know, in Jesus, I'm still chosen. And it's tough. Now, they've taken it the wrong way, as we'll see. But it's tough to combat the fact that the Bible clearly says that Israel, Jews, are the chosen people. But I'll take you back to what Zach said. It was the, one of the big, most poignant things because I hadn't even connected it. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You notice that you, those three are repeated, right? The faithful. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It doesn't say Abraham, Ishmael, and Esau. Abraham had Isaac and Ishmael. And we see that Isaac was saved. Ishmael was not, but wasn't he born Jew? Wasn't he born Jew? Wasn't he part of God's chosen people? And again, if you, if you need to go back to one sermon, I would go back to Zach's chapter 9. And then Jacob, why not Esau? Because it has always been about faith, not about genetics. Isaac had faith. Ishmael did not. Jacob had a faith that was pleasing to God. Esau did not. He says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So clearly being born Jewish isn't enough, even by Old Testament standards. And so he says, so what about the Jews? Has God cast off his people? Is he done with them? And then he answers his own question. He says, certainly not. So he says, is is their fate sealed? Signed, done, all Jews unsaved now? He says, certainly not, but He's going to give evidence. He says, for I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, it always runs back up, of the tribe of Benjamin, which was a very prestigious tribe, gave Israel its first king. So he says, look, the evidence that God has not cut off all of Jews is me. But why is it Paul? What's different about Paul? He has faith in Jesus. You see? He says, the evidence that God hasn't written off the Israelites, Jews, is me. Why? I've placed my faith in Jesus. He knows his name now. It continues to be about faith in Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament. Certainly not. He says, I'm an Israelite. Am I cut off? No. Why? What connects me to God? What reconciles me to God? Faith in Jesus. He himself is the evidence of that. That's probably about as clear as the chapter gets. We're just going to get murkier from here on out. Okay, you ready? <laughs> okay, it's about as clear as it gets. We should wrap it up and just have Justin sing to us for the rest of the night because I wanted to take a nap. That was glorious, by the way. You were a whiz on that acoustic. So he says this. He says in, in, in verse two, he says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what scripture says of Elijah? how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. If you've studied demon worship, Baal, is a, he's, he's in another category talking child sacrifice and everything disgusting. The demon god, Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant. If you want to underline a word, I would underline remnant. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. We've got to get to the election of grace. But before that, he references Elijah. Elijah thought at that point, even in the Old Testament, that God had cut off the entire nation. 
Elijah himself, a prophet of God, said, look, God has clearly cast everyone away. It's just me now, God. I'm the only one serving you. And God's response was, no, there's a remnant. There's a remnant of faithful among Israel. Acknowledging that back then, even in the Old Testament, not all of Israel was saved. Do you see that? That's the misconception when you talk with your Jewish friends. They assume the Old Testament declares all Jews are saved. But even in Elijah's day, God says, no, there's a remnant. There is a faithful remnant that had, as God peered into their hearts, that had a faith in the coming Messiah. And so he, he, he tells Elijah, he says, look, there's, there's more. It's not a ton. It's not a lot. But there is a remnant. A lot of times we think that God has to use massive amounts of people to get things done, right? In our school, in our families, in our friend circle, in our community, We think, man, if we could just amass the biggest Christian club this university has ever seen, we could change this school, right? And we see time and time again, God uses small remnants of faithful people for massive things. Remnants of faithful people can do massive things by God's grace. And so he says, even then there was a remnant and Elijah pleaded with God, And he says this, some of you freak out at this word, don't worry about it. He says, according to the election of grace. Two things, what is grace? It's it's arguably the most important concept. Um, We're going to talk about it more later in the chapter. It's arguably the most, I would say it's arguably the most important, if not top three concepts in the Christian faith. And I would break it down simply like this. It's getting what you don't deserve. Getting what you don't deserve. It is what God gives you, though you don't deserve it. It's not mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And it was an election process by God's sovereignty. Now, how do you know if you're elect? You love Jesus. People are like, no, cute, but like, seriously, like, how do I? That's how you know. How do you know if you're elect? If you love Jesus, you are elect. I don't need to go any deeper than that. I've seen, I've seen 50,000 page studies, discussions, debates. I've seen charts about when election in, in the process of decision, of faith and then the works. And, then the, and they, they try to figure, I, look, if you love Jesus, you're elect. If you hate Jesus your whole life and on your deathbed, you profess a true faith in Jesus, you're elect. If you're like me and you have actually no clue when Jesus saved you, don't have a clue. No, I got a boring testimony. No radical like junior high experience, anything like that. I just grew up loving Jesus in a family that loved and served Jesus. Super boring testimony. I know I'm elect. It doesn't matter how. If you love Jesus, you're elect. And chances are when that question is raised, I've said this before, when that question is raised, if, if you want to know how someone is elect, how, how you're elect, that's, that chances are you're elect. Because people who aren't don't care. Atheists, true hardened atheists, aren't wondering if they're elect. They don't care. So don't be afraid of election. But know that God gave this, though we did not deserve it. Nothing, nothing of our doing warranted or deserved this election. And we're going to go into a little bit more 
But we'll move on. So he says, there is a remnant. He was telling Elijah, look, there's a remnant. And this remnant was according to the election of grace. See, grace didn't start in the New Testament. We think it did. We think like the Holy Spirit started in the New Testament and Jesus started in the New Testament and grace started in the New Testament. No. It began when God kicked off everything. I mean, if you want a point of grace, first of all, we, don't, we didn't deserve to be created. But in, chapter, in Genesis 3, the whole thing should have ended, right? The whole experiment should have ended. The fact that God came down and withheld mercy and then gave us the next breath probably when grace roughly started, okay? Not getting what we deserve. Because the Bible says common grace is every breath we take, okay? And so even then, in Elijah's day, it was an election by grace, not an election by observance of the law. As we talked about last week, the law was simply to point you to the fact that you needed a savior. It did no saving. So it was an election of grace. And I love this, verse 6. This was my Facebook status this evening, if you creep on that. It says, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Love that. But if it is of works, then it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What Paul says is that these two concepts, these two concepts do not coexist. Now, we see in James that a a saving faith produces works, do we not? So by grace, you're given faith and then comes works, correct? Do we follow that sequence? But if you deserve something, you can't get anything that you didn't deserve, right? If you did something to merit it, then God owed it to you. It wasn't that he gave it to you, though he didn't deserve it. Does that make sense? And he says, if you've done something to earn it and you accept it and he gives it to you based on your merit, then it's not grace. It's not grace. Grace has to be unmerited favor. People say grace is an acronym. I kind of dig it. God's riches at Christ's expense. That Christ was slaughtered so that God could pour out grace on you so that we could get what we don't deserve. And so he says, look, grace and works cannot coexist in this sense. Again, we know grace and then faith and then production of that equals works. It's very clear in James that that will be an outcome of a faith that you've been saved by grace. But if you deserve it, God can't give it to you though you don't deserve it. And so that's all he's saying. He says, look, if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, then it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. You need to know. You need to know. Apart from the person and the work of Jesus, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, what is the gospel, some of those things that Zach and I attacked when we did the true gospel series. If you want to delineate all false religions, even the ones that say they're Christian, you get on a conversation about grace. This sets of Christianity apart, not above, not superior in an earthly sense. But grace separates Christianity from every false religion, every single one. That's why during the Reformation with Martin Luther and Calvin and Wesley and all those guys, you've read about the Reformation. Out of the Reformation came five theological pillars. I'm not going to go into them all. I did a series on that a couple years ago. 
Okay? It goes sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and soli deo glorious. It's by the scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. And all this at the time was in contradistinction to the Roman Catholic Church. That was adding to scripture. That was saying faith plus works equals salvation. That works obtained or secured salvation by grace. Okay? And I won't go into the rest of it, but you need to know that this is a foundational pillar. This verse, a foundational pillar in what sets Christianity, our genuine true faith in the one true living king, apart from all false religions, even if they claim to be Christian. Mormonism can't stand on a pillar of grace alone. Jehovah's Witnesses can't stand on a pillar of grace alone. Their ideology doesn't allow for it. So this is a central theme in Christianity, and Paul has to set this up. He says, look, and he rails on this time and time again. So we, Zach and I rail on this time and time again. Why? Because the Holy Spirit told him to rail on this time and time again. By grace, not works. These two cannot coexist. If you believe for one second that you were deserving of your salvation, you've undone grace. And the Bible says it's one of the ways that you can fall from grace. It's a a grave, grave warning. Works are to be had for sure, but they cannot coexist with grace or it is no longer grace. Verse seven, it says, what then? What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it and the rest were blinded just as it is written. Then he quotes Isaiah 29. God has given them a spirit of stupor eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. He says a spirit of stupor. A spirit of stupor. Commentator Barclay says the idea is that men are sitting feasting comfortably at their banquet and their very sense of safety has become their ruin. They are so secure in the fancied safety that the enemy can come upon them unaware. I just watched The Big Short last night. Anyone seen The Big Short? Financial crisis. The movie's not cool, clearly. (laughs) Uh, Piggybacking on last week, Ryan Gosling is in it, so now every girl wants to see The Big Short, okay? And so, what's that? I, I was actually, and I didn't, pl- I didn't plan this by any means. It's, it's a lot of financial stuff. My wife and I were joking. We're like, there's like one or two scenes where they broke it down like Barney style. Like they go out to the crowd. Like if this guy does a deal with this guy and he shakes his hand and now they do it. And then this other guy bets on their bet. And then you're sort of like, oh, I think I get it. But it's financial stuff. It's over my head. But one of the things as I, as I was preparing this, as I saw it too, is this idea that when you watch that movie, it's all about the financial breakdown and like, you know, the build up to 2008 when everything crashed. You've got all these bankers doing subprime crazy mortgages, all this stuff. Don't worry, you'll probably never be able to afford a mortgage in this dang state anyways. Um, I'm, we're all moving to Nashville, I know it. But um, Nashville's awesome. But uh, check us out. <laughs> but, um, but you could see in that movie that all these bankers, all these financial guys, they think everything is so safe. They are making money hand over fist, if you will. They've been chosen. This is their time to be allotted a, a ton of money. They made a ton of money. And they're just callous about it. They're, just, they're in a spirit of stupor. They're just, look, nothing can touch us. We're the chosen people. 
right? We're not doing anything wrong. No one's going to jail. People just want homes. We're getting them homes. Never mind that their APR is going to jump by two to 300%. Look, they're just in the spirit of, look, and and look, if if you've ministered and none of this bags, he won't allow in this text for us to bag on on Jews. He's going to, he's going to level the playing field. But if, if any of you have engaged with the Jews, you realize they can just very easily sit back, as I said before, and just say, look, chosen people, you know, you've even got the Old Testament. Go read it. I'm chosen, right? And says, God gave him the spirit of stupor, okay? Some of you are going to tell us, well, God gave it to him. That's what the text says. That's what I'm going to teach. He gave it to him, blinded their eyes. But God's always had this enveloping plan. Watch how it unfolds. He says, he's given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Verse 9, and David says, and he quotes Psalm 69, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Two heavy texts that Paul quotes. And so what he's going to go into now, and if you have subtitles you may have at the top of yours, Israel's rejection, not final. He sets this up. He sets it's very, it's very grave. But he sets this up. I say then, have they stumbled and watch. He delineates between stumbling and falling. He says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. Certainly not. He says, look, Israel is actively and ongoingly stumbling. Okay? But that doesn't mean that they've fallen entirely doesn't mean that they've fallen entirely. God is not, he says, certainly not. Again, affirming God is not done with Israel. You need to know that. That doesn't mean that we don't evangelize, that we don't, by the grace of God, bring them to Jesus or be a part in God's active plan to bring them to Jesus now. We've got Pastor Marty on staff here, 87 today. 87 today. Grew up a rabbi, Jewish. Met Jesus here which is epic, so he doesn't have to meet him like in Revelation or in the Tribulation or anything like that. He met him now and is serving Jesus now. The Bible says, Paul says, God is not done with the Jewish people. They are stumbling, but is it that they've fallen? He says, certainly not. But through their fall, check this out. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. To provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentile. Paul's heart is that that the Jewish people in his day and our day would have a jealousy, a good jealousy. God says he's a jealous God at times. Jealousy, Jealousy can be sinful and it can be useful. And he says that they would be jealous for the sort of faith, for the sort of promise that we live under. But again, the Bible says the new covenant better than the old covenant. I'm telling you, Jews in their heart, when you talk to them consistently quite a bit, you can see that they long for a lot more than even Judaism offers them now on earth, which is a set of laws, religiosity, morality, and especially in America where all that is being torn down before our very eyes. God says, I want them to have a jealousy for the promise that we live under, the question for us, the exhortation for us, are you living a life worthy of someone like a Jew being jealous of? Are you? Is that faith just pour out? 
that calm amid storms, that joy amid chaos or dead week, right? Because I'm telling you, when things go south, I was at a company one time where things in our department went south fast and I had a girl who we had talked about a couple times at like happy hours and stuff like that, like engaged me on this whole Christianity thing. And, ah, it's sexist. And we went around the tables. And I didn't think that anything would ever connect and especially the questions she asked and, and I just responded I didn't like debate but when things started to go really south I got an IM because that was like a thing way back in the day like doo-doo, at work and it says how are you able to be calm amidst all this she's like why are you why are you like seemingly we, we know you get it but you're like kind of okay with everything and I said well two things and I made a joke I said uh, at the time I said I'm in the Marine Corps no one shot at me today so it's not a terrible day right we're at Thousand Oaks at Sage Publications like it's fine relax right <laughs> And the second thing was, I said, look, I've got a faith. I've got, I've, got, I've, I've, got a, I've got a joy that surpasses all understanding, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And trust me, I was not living this outpouring. Just I wasn't standing on my desk evangelizing all the time. It's a good way to get fired, right? But people knew. They're like, but everything was getting shaky. And, 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 and by the grace of God, it was just kind of had a peace about it, right? When I lost my job or I walked out of my job a couple summers ago, it was the first time that I truly just kind of felt like, look, and it's scary with a California mortgage and kids and diapers and all that sort of stuff. But for the first time, my wife can attest to this. She's like, man, if that happened a couple of years ago, you'd been a mess. We would have freaked out. We would have moved to Nashville that day, right? So you just went into this time of peace. I was like, I know. I'm just going to spend eight weeks at the pool, <laughs> right? Like, this is fine. But I had a piece, of, and people are just like, how are you doing it? Look, it's just this faith. And you can see that people kind of wanted some of that. Paul says, man, that people would be jealous, that Jews would be jealous of these now Gentiles, Right? And so he, he, he rolls into this. He says that, that salvation has now come to the Gentiles. And look, if you're in their mind and you've built yourself up as the chosen people that have been following all this law, as I said last week, the gospel is a scandal. The fact that all of a sudden all these heathen Gentiles are just like, we're in. We're good. Because Jesus, I can't do anything to add to it or anything to get it taken from me. That's crazy. Let's have a beer. And they're like, what? This is, this is a scandal. The gospel is a scandal. But again, what's happening is this. What they wanted to keep it like this. It's us. It's about us. And God said, no, it's about me. And I get to add to my people. You don't. And so now we've been grafted and now we're a part of this enveloping promise. Promise to, to, to Israel didn't end. Remember this. His promise to Israel hasn't ended. It's a great way to spark conversation with Jewish friends. Let's talk about God's promise. But talk about where it's going, how it's enveloping now, because he turns it and he rolls it right into that salvation has now come to the Gentiles. Verse 12, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, low battery, here we go. That's right, I don't need notes. If their fall is riches to the, for the world and their failure riches to the Gentile, how much more their fullness for I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He says, if God can use their stumbling to envelop more people, how much more epic will it be when he completes his work with Israel and they're brought back in? It's going to come cyclic. 
It's gonna, God's been telling one big story. In fact, the book of Revelation, something like 76%, I think, if I remember correctly, 76% of the entire book of Revelation is references to the Old Testament because God's the ultimate author and wants to tell us that this whole thing has been one cyclic story. It's been one consistent story, story with Jesus at the center. And he says, if God can redeem the stumbling of Israel to graft us in, how much more awesome is it gonna be that he then redeems them too? That he brings them in. He's not short on his promise. Because if he's cut off Israel, can't he do the same thing to us? Can he change the game soon? He could, but he won't. His promises are true. And so he says, that I may provoke to jealousy. For if they're being cast away, verse 15, is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, I would submit to you first fruit is the first Christians. Varying, varying opinions on that, but I think it just makes most sense if these are the first Christians, many of them Jewish converts. It says, if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. So if the first Christians were holy, now the church is set apart as holy. He says, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. He's going to go into an epic illustration. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Now he's going to level the playing field because if, if, if at any point you're starting to think like, man, we got it figured out and they don't, we need to go fix them. He's going to start to level it. Verse 17, and if some of the branches were broken off, so again, he admits that some of the people in Israel could be broken off. Some of the church can be broken off. If some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So we'll move away from my cone analogy. Now we're going to take a look at a tree analogy. He says, look, Christianity is, look, here's the raw truth. Christianity is not the root of God's promises. It's not. We are the branches. But the root is his promise to the nation of Israel. Let us not think that we are the new root and they are the branches. They are the root of God's promises. They are the beginning. We have been enveloped into that for sure. The branches have continued, which is now the church. But the root of God's promises lie with Israel. They lie with Israel. It says, do not boast, Christians. You do not support Judaism. My promise to you does not support the gospel in a sense that it overtakes Judaism. We have now been grafted into this promise, which its roots are the nation of Israel. Though we know not everyone born Jewish is saved. And so grafted in, probably the, the, the term that we associate graft in the most is with skin grafts, right? And I have a couple pictures. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and so I thought about it. <laughs> um, but uh, I looked at my iPhone. I was like, nope. Um, but a skin graft. Have you guys heard of skin grafts? Burns. I've got a friend actually, or a, a, a brother of a friend of mine recently burned as a firefighter. A, a severe amount of his body burned. And what, is a, what does a skin graft do? Does it, does it stitch up the existing skin? 
Does it recreate something fake on top of the skin? What does it do? It takes actual skin and puts it onto actual skin and it grafts it together, right? And so they take actual skin from one body, Gentiles, non-believers, atheists, agnostic, Buddhist, and those that profess a faith in Christ now get grafted in to the body that God has been building and its roots are of Israel. So now this body that walks around and you see all the time in the New Testament, we're called a body, a body, a body because we're an organism, we're a living, breathing thing, right? The church is. So we've been placed onto this body that existed and its foundation is the nation of Israel. It doesn't, it doesn't devalue Christianity by any means. But what it does is it sets us straight and guys like me that want to get up and just evangelize the living daylights out of them. Well, you guys don't get it. You haven't ascended to what I've ascended to. It says, look, your foundation is there and, pe- and, and God still loves them, right? And so we've now been, been grafted in to this body, God's kingdom. And it says, remember that you do not support the root, but that the root supports you. And that's the promises that God made to Israel. Verse 19, will or you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, here it is again, because of unbelief. Not because of unadherence to the law. Because of unbelief, they are broken off. And you stand by faith. This has always been about faith. Belief, do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, his original promise, because he probably could have just said, look, okay, yeah, you, you, you rejected Jesus, but I get I changed the rules on you, so like, don't worry about it. He says, if God wouldn't even spare those that wouldn't come to Christ, he, how would he spare us? For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. It's a grave call. It says, look, you've got to put your faith in something way higher than you. You can't support this. You cannot shoulder the weight of God's promises. Verse 22, therefore consider the goodness. Consider the goodness and severity of God. Do we do that enough? Do we do that? Do we, do we balance the two? Look, I've said before, look, the, the Bible speaks of God's wrath, anger, his justice, violence at times, way more than his love. Is that because he's always angry? No, it's because unless we understand his severity, we can't truly appreciate his goodness. If my kids never see dad stern with them, they'll never understand how truly gentle I am most of the time. And the Bible speaks of his severity and his wrath and his anger far more. Again, not because we're preaching an angry God. His anger was poured out on Jesus. That's why we're like, oh, he doesn't seem angry anymore. I know, right? Amazing how that worked out. What changed? I don't know. What do you think? Where'd all that anger go? Right? Where'd all this wrath go? Jesus absorbed it all. And God's not angry. God the Father's not angry with anyone anymore. He's not angry. But it says we balance the goodness. It says continue in the goodness and balance it with the severity of God. You have to understand it. Look, unless you know, unless you know how severe God can be, you can't appreciate how loving he is. Matt Chandler, one of my favorite pastors, digital pastors at least, said, um, 
If anyone refuses to preach to you the wrath and the severity of God, they've betrayed you. Betrayed you. Luckily, we're at Calvary. We're not afforded that. Zach and I don't get to like skip around topics and have a couple verses support what we want to talk about. We got to go verse by verse. But it talks about having this balance. It doesn't mean you're afraid of God. Look, heaven's not a place for people that are afraid of hell. It's a place for people who love Jesus and thank him for saving them from hell. But we've got to balance that God's goodness does coincide. It does go along with his severity. And that's the awe and the reverence and the fear that we have for God. And it's good. It's healthy. My boys know. They know that I'm stronger than them. They know the severity that I could have, which is why they appreciate my tenderness more, right? So he says, balance that. Consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but toward you, goodness. I love this part. If you continue in his goodness, continue. One of the things that Pastor Brett pours into me constantly wearing a quad together is, is this abiding in Jesus, this abiding in Jesus. And that's what he's saying is you continue in Jesus. You continue in this goodness. You continue. That's why in John 15, one through eight, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. It's like a recurring theme. We're sticks, that's terrific, right? What'd you learn at church today? I'm a stick. And I'm terrible without the rest of the plant. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Jesus, that's not nice, but it's true. There is severity. So continue to abide in me so that I may protect you from that severity. You see that? And they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. And so it says continue in him. I've lost my place. 23. So it says otherwise you will be cut off. Continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. And that's exactly what Jesus said. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. Isn't that epic? It's going to come full circle to the nation of Israel. If they do not continue in this unbelief, which we see active and alive in our culture, with Jews that are unsaved, that are non-Messianic Jews, they will be grafted in. Isn't that epic? We got grafted in, and guess who gets grafted in? More, but what is it predicated on? Always that they're in Christ. I said last week, two buckets, right? Jesus and sinners. If you're not found in the first bucket, you will be found in the second. That's why they call us in Christ way more than they call us Christians, the Bible. In Christ, they will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. And I have in my Bible from a previous study when I said confer Revelation 7. 
144,000. They're not Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way. And by the way, they had to change that once their membership breached 144,000. They had to, well, it's the people at the front table at the wedding. It got crazy after that. What do you do when your whole thing's based off being 144,000 strong and then you reach 144,001? You've got to change your theology. But check this out. The Bible says what? The Bible says that those are Jews. Jews. Revelation 7. 144,000. And they list all the tribes that they'll be from. Those are Jews. That says even in the tribulation, he'll be grafting Jews back into this promise. Back into the body. He will graft them in again. Verse 24. I think I'm just going to run through this. It says, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature. I love that, by the way. Christians, a bunch of wild people, right? We are, aren't we? You ever met Jews? Like, like stuffy, like straight up, like laws, like rules, like chosen people. And we're just like, it's cool, right? Like, Jesus, we're fine. We do whatever we want, right? We're a little wild. Bible says we're wild by nature, aren't we? Getting grafted into this body. I like that. You don't apparently like it as much, but I dig it. And it says, and we're grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. Doesn't that sound like like Israel, cultivated olive tree? Grafted into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. He starts to lay it out. He's like, you're confused, right? That's what he said to me. He's like, so uh, by the way, you're, you're getting confused, aren't you? Yeah. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion, the blindness in part has happened to Israel until, so it's temporary. This blindness that we see, doesn't, it doesn't abdicate our responsibility to evangelize. Bring people to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of Jesus while we're here. But their blindness, the Bible says, is temporary. God's not done with them. It is Temporary. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When does he give it back? After he's done cultivating non-believers. God has always been a patient God. Some of us, as soon as you get saved, you like want revelation. You're like, fine, I'm done with this. Right? Like every time I see child trafficking, every time I see sex trafficking, every time I see human trafficking and pornography and abuse and war, I've been to war, I've seen the devastation. It's not cute, it's not a poster. Every time I see this stuff, what do I want? I want revelation done with this. Grab my boys. Jesus, come back. We're ready. We watched Astro Boy today. It's just, I'm ready to go, right? But God's giving people time. Why? Because he's bringing in more people to this enveloping promise. He's grafting more people onto this body. He's building his kingdom. Though culture can fall, his kingdom will always rise. Though culture can fall, his kingdom will always rise. It only gets bigger until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And everyone goes, hold up, right? That's twice. Boom, boom. I did that before. My wife's like, you did not do Dre from the pulpit, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, <laughs> 90 people don't know. Dang it, no one knows who Dre is anymore. All right, so I think he was just at Coachella. I think he's back. So check us out. <laughs> all of Israel will be saved. Suddenly we're universalist for the nation of Israel. It's not true. It contradicts everything that Paul has been railing. What it does say is that at some point, at some point, all of what is contained as Israel will be saved. But it doesn't mean everyone born Jewish is saved. Does that make sense? At some point, to be honest, part of me leans toward this is Revelation 7. 144,000 Jews left and the Holy Spirit comes and says, got you all. 
Possibly, I'm making a bit of a theological extension. Don't quote me on that. We'll probably cut it from the video, okay? Right? But I think at that point, that will be the encompassing banner. That will be the number underneath the term Israel. But it doesn't mean everyone born Jewish is saved, right? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And so, as it is written... Quotes from Isaiah says, The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. We see Jews. I am guilty of seeing Jews as the enemy of the gospel. An enemy to be defeated by the gospel. This chapter course corrects me. I pray it course corrects anyone that has done the same thing I have done. He says, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. Those are the patriarchs. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Thank goodness I don't decide because I go malicious quick. You rejected Jesus, you out. Look, you need to know everyone will stand before Jesus and be saved by him or cast out by him. I said it last week as well. The Bible says the father judges no one. He has commissioned all judgment to the son. Why? Because the son took all judgment. So only he can give judgment back. Father judges no one. He's commissioned all. He's committed all judgment to the son. So no Jew will come and say, chosen people. And he says, is your faith in me? And he say, no, 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 I'm chosen people. I don't, I don't need you chosen. Old Testament, read the book. Don't wait for the movie. I, I get to do the Jewish thing and get in. I, I'm saved by the Jewish route. It doesn't happen. There's no subversive way that Jews get in apart from a faith in Jesus. Does that make sense? Everyone has to come. Jesus says, I am the door. It's it. There's not, hey, is there a window I could crawl through? It's not. Coming through the garage? No, Jesus says me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Jesus will hash this out, okay? And so he says, concerning the gospel, they are enemies, but concerning the election, they are beloved. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient, and there he levels it, Mark, you were so disobedient. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all. Here's the two buckets. There's Jesus and then the disobedient. For God has committed them all to the disobedient, that he might have mercy on all. And then, and then he just, and then like right there, then he just like starts singing and praising. I love it. Then he's just like, oh, the depths of riches, right? And then he's just like, like Paul's like losing it. He's like, we got through it. And then now he's just praising. And what is he, he's praising the fact that we don't have to get it. He says, oh, the depth of riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has given to him and it shall be repaid to him. Here's the clinch. Here's the clinch. What do we do with all of this? The parts you understood, the parts that you don't. He says this, for of him and through him and to him are all things 
to whom be glory forever. Amen. Here's the finale. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. Did you need more than that? He says, all this is to be written and testified and point to the glory of God, but here's your charge. After all of that, Paul sings and says, yo, keep your eyes on Jesus. Any questions? Right? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Again, it doesn't abdicate our our, our responsibility to evangelize, but you need to know that God will sort out the details to his glory, not ours. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, I pray that, that through whatever I made of, of that passage, I pray that it would be glorifying to you. Seeing ultimately that we have not been drafted for our talent, we've been grafted by your grace. That we brought nothing to the table. You brought us to the table. And I am so glad that you are a God that keeps his promises. Even though I have struggled with how those promises play out for the nation of Israel, I love the fact that you clearly declare you are not done with them because that means you are not done with me. And I fail and I am disobedient. And yet you've grafted me in by grace and you will do the same for those whom you choose. So God, will we just rest in that? Jesus, would you, Holy Spirit, would you keep our eyes locked on Jesus? Focused on him, what he has done. Not abdicating our responsibility to to preach to a dying world, but knowing that you are sorting out all the details. You will have your way with the whole story because it's yours. So we thank you for the good news that you are a God who keeps his promises to Israel, to us forever, for your glory. Amen.